on my sabbatical, I've been mesmerized by the Apostles' Creed. And we gave you all one in your handout. There's one on the screen. This will make sense in my message. Some of you recited this all your life and you never believed it. Um, now hopefully you believe it. So creeds have been said by congregations for thousands of years, and this is the standard creed. So let's read it together and I'll talk about it in my message. You ready? Follow me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You can have your seat. So, you all ready for the Gospel of John? Yeah, I am. It's been nine years since I've taught the Gospel of John. I am so full, so excited. I'm not going to dump everything on you in one day. But let's begin on holy ground. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning... There was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It wasn't a God, he was God in the Greek. He was in the beginning with God. Now, the Word is Jesus. I think that's fairly accurate. The whole gospel is about Jesus. But just in case you need a little more evidence, John, when he sees the revelation, sees the second coming of Christ. And in John chapter 19, he says, in verse 11, I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a, like a flame of fire. This is a description or the unveiling of Jesus early in Revelation. Uh, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So, this is all about Jesus, right? In the beginning with God and he was God. Uh, we're talking about Jesus here. In him, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. It's not John the Apostle, John the Writer. It's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, speaking of the Jews. But as many as did receive him, and hopefully that's you and me, to them he gave the right or the power, power of attorney, literally, to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. In other words, not a human birthday, but a spiritual birthday, born of God. And then this great verse, 14, and the word, Jesus, God, 
became flesh, and he dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And what we're going to unpack in all of John is that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Some of you have known grace, some of you have known truth. We're going to learn grace and truth. So we start the Gospel of John. Now, maybe this is me. When I read John, there's something special. And maybe every book's like that, right? Maybe I say that every time I start a book. But there's something about John that inspires me. It lifts me. I, I don't know what it is. And I know all scriptures God breathed. And we don't elevate one scripture above another. But there is something about John. And I think I figured it out. For some of us, and I'm a convert. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. For some of us, these are the first words we ever read in the Bible. I went to 12 years of religious school, never read a Bible. The first time I read a Bible, I read in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I traveled this road of John, and I met all the encounters Jesus had with people. So there's, there's something familiar and lifting about this. When I sit next to a skeptic or encounter somebody who's learning about Christianity, I, I want to give them John. I say, look, open your Bible to John. Read a chapter a day. Don't read one more or one less, because that's what somebody told me. And, and so John is special to all of us, I think, right? I mean, there's always that outlier who is in a hotel room and reads Leviticus and comes to Christ, or reads Genesis to Revelation, right? I've heard of those stories. But for many people, it's John. Now, again, I'm not elevating John above Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed, it's profitable for doctrine, reproof and righteousness, correction, that the man of God may be complete. And if we didn't have the synoptics, we would be at a loss, right? You, you have Matthew, he's Levi, he's Jewish. He turned his back on his Jewish faith to become a tax collector. But he meets Jesus, and now he's one of the disciples, and he writes a gospel we could never live without. It's, it's, it's centered on the Old Testament. It's building a link for us of the God of Genesis through Malachi, Jesus becoming that, that finality. Uh, he has more Old Testament quotes than any other gospel writer. Twelve times he said that it might be fulfilled, tying the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, Matthew's favorite word for Jesus, or favorite title, is the King of the Jews. He uses it over a hundred times. And when he writes his genealogy, he takes it to the first Jew, Abraham, through Israel's first legitimate king, David. Now, when it's Luke's turn to write, he writes a far different gospel. He was a physician. He's interested in the humanity of Christ. It's almost like he's writing to the Greeks. And he, and he gives us the Christmas story, right? He's interested in the virgin birth. He's interested in things that the other gospel writers aren't. He's seeing through a different lens. And so he gives us Jesus in all his humanity. And for him, the genealogy now doesn't go back to the first Jew. It goes back to the first man. It goes back to Adam. And I don't know if you know this, Luke is one of the greatest historians in all antiquity, sacred or secular. He gives us more dates, times, rulers than any other gospel writers, and we would be at a loss without him. Mark writes Peter's gospel, which is the shortest. It's action-packed, right? Peter was impetuous, cart before the horse. It's a very quick gospel. It almost seems like it has a Roman audience because he looks at Jesus as the son of man or the suffering servant. Now that word servant in your Bible is always slave, okay? The translators were afraid to write it, but it's slave. That's how Peter saw Jesus ministering to slaves. There were over a million indentured servants or slaves in the Roman Empire. 
So that's Mark or Peter's perspective. But now it's John's turn to write. He's 90 years old. He's already been put on a penal colony called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He's lived a long life, the martyrdom of a long life. He's already seen the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus, the Jesus far different than the one he walked with. The Jesus whose eyes are a flame of fire and his feet are like bronze, the one who's coming back to judge the earth, who treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. The temple's been destroyed. And this wise man looks back and he basically wants to tell us three things that nobody else tells us. 90% of his gospel's original. He wants to tell us about the new birth, about being born again, being born of God. You'll see this all through John. He wants to tell us about the Holy Spirit. Before I left, I did a series on the Holy Spirit. Three chapters on the Holy Spirit. We know more about the Holy Spirit from John than anybody else. And then he wants us to know about heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you. And if I leave and go prepare a place for you, I will receive you unto myself that you may be where I always am. 90 years old, looking back, this man who was 17 years old, who was a fisherman, his dad was a fisherman, and his sons would have been fishermen, who has lived the greatest journey in life anyone could imagine, said there should be three things on your mind. Are you born of God? Do you live in the Holy Spirit? And is heaven your home? That's all he cares about. He doesn't tell us what Jesus looks like. He doesn't tell us he was 5'10", that he looked like Christopher Columbus, the only non-Jew in Israel. He doesn't tell us any of that. I wish he would have, so we wouldn't have to endure all those Renaissance paintings. He's not interested in parables, genealogies, the Sermon on the Mount. He's not interested in all the things the other writers give us. And then he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Can you imagine what life would be like if we saw ourselves that way? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he begins to give us these encounters with Jesus, things we don't see in the other Gospels. Everybody in this room knows the woman at the well, but we don't even know her name, but we know the woman at the well. We don't know her name, but we know she had five husbands, and the man she was living with wasn't hers. And Jesus said, go live a life free of sin. We know the woman caught in adultery. We don't know her name. We know she was caught in adultery. And we see Jesus sit down with the finger of God. We haven't seen the finger of God since Daniel where the finger was writing on the wall, where judgment was coming on Belshazzar, now we see the finger of God setting this woman free. Whatever Jesus wrote, we'll talk about it when we get there, would set this woman free. He was about sin, cast the first stone. He gives us, John, the New Testament's most memorable Bible verse. Today's opening day of the NFL, you'll see it when they kick extra points, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, Gave his only begotten son, whoever believed on him would not perish, but would have eternal life, right? He gives us the Bible's shortest verse. Jesus wept. The tomb of Lazarus. Now Jesus was going to raise Lazarus, so he wasn't weeping that Lazarus died. He was weeping that we'd ever experienced death. The same God who was in the beginning with God and was God, now weeping with humanity, not for humanity, with humanity. It's only John that tells us the breakfast by the sea where Peter was restored. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. 50% of John's gospel is about the last week of Jesus' life. It's the only gospel that tells us about being born again. It tells it to a religious leader. Unless a man be born again, I'll never see the kingdom of God. Only John 
tells us that, and only John tells us why he wrote. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says, Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He said, gosh, if, if we wrote everything, we'd have to fill libraries in the world um, that are not written in this book, but these are written. Uh, seven signs, seven encounters with human beings, seven I am statements. These were written, here's why, that you, not your neighbor, you may believe Jesus is the Son of God. Why is that important? That believing that he's the Son of God, you might have life in his name. See, John knew what life was. He said, this is eternal life, that you might know him. That you might know him. Eternal life is in heaven. It's part of it. John said, in the here and now, you can know God, and I'm writing to tell you this. And I'm showing you these people, real people like you and me, who are just trying to get their kids through college and trying to make sense of this life and the next. That Jesus encounters people like this. John is a book of salvation. It's the universal gospel. Now, we've ruined that word salvation. When people hear, are you saved, they think it's, are you going to heaven? And that leads to rabbit trails like, whoa, your religion's better than my religion. We argue about all this stuff. The word salvation means deliverance. It means freedom. Let me tell you something's going to surprise you through John. You're going to be surprised how many references you see back, not, not quotes, but, but wordings from the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses mentioned 12 times. Manna mentioned three times. We have the story of the serpent on the pole. The law mentioned 16 times. And it shouldn't surprise us because Exodus is a liberation story. It's God's people being taken from bondage into freedom. Now, if you know anything about the book of Exodus, think, think this through with me. Exodus begins with the Cecil B. DeMille, Steven Spielberg, the plagues, the deliverance, right? We're going to part the Red Sea. We've seen all the special effects, right? At the end, and I'm pretty sure nobody reads this, you're reading about the tabernacle, linens and rods and furniture, and it's chapter after chapter, and people just leave that because they think this is unnecessary information, but it's very necessary because Exodus is about going from bondage to worship. And you see, that's what so many of us in this room, that was our freedom. We who were in bondage, and you know what bondage is? When you are serving anything else but God. When anything else but God is first place in your life, you are in bondage, and you're not in freedom. Wednesday night, um, Scott Harrison of Charity Water was here. Scott was living the life. He was the number one nightclub promoter in New York. He had women, he had wine, he had an apartment in Soho. He had everything you could want at the age of 30 years old and half his body went numb. And he comes on this long journey and he receives Christ. He's now raised 10 million, he's now taken 10 million people from dirty water to clean water. He's raised over $500 billion. This is a man who will tell you, I thought I had freedom. And I'll tell you now, freedom is finding the right master. Bill Gates one time at a commencement gave the 10 things you should do to ruin your kids. You know what one of them was? Give them everything they want. See, God will never do that to us. Why would anybody do that to anybody? Freedom is not getting what you want. Freedom is finding the right master. And the reason why the book of Exodus is so profound in John is because it was pointing somewhere. That deliverance was pointing to a human being, the lamb, the lamb they put on the doorpost would become a human being and dwell among us.
And he would be the tabernacle that we would worship in. Salvation is when we are released from anything that would be first place in our life. Matt Mayer last week speaking to you guys. Vehicular homicide, in jail, now set free. Thought he was living the life. We could go on and on. People that are baptized in sizzling summary, your situation, my situation. Now, there's a problem in all this. The problem in all this, and I know you guys feel this, in the dominant culture, Christianity and Christians, um, the dominant culture is hostile to us. You ever notice that? Watch TV or movies or just, just get around people. I mean, there, there's a hostility towards us. And some of it we've earned, right? Some of it just comes with the territory. But you know what I discovered? As hostile as people are towards you and me, most people don't have a problem with Jesus. Have you figured that one out? Yeah, I Google stuff, right? So I Google the top 20 people that ever lived. Jesus, number one in every list. You know, avowed atheists think he's the greatest human being that ever lived. Uh, I've been reading George Will since I was 20 years old. And he's an avowed agnostic. And he's got a new book out, and he, he kind of comes down on some of these new atheists or these people that think Christians are bigoted or small-minded. And he goes, you guys better slow down and realize, and, and he says, I'm an agnostic, that the greatest human life was religious, Jesus. Almost every worldview and religion has Jesus as part of their system. Mormons, Jews, even Islam see Jesus as a great prophet. Uh, in the 90s, we did an outreach in Madison Square Garden. They were having a New Age festival there, one in San Francisco, one in New York, and those were probably the places you would do it. And it was the weirdest room I had ever been in. I mean, every New Age belief system you could imagine was there. It looked like 2,000 years ago, smoke was wafing through. People had triangles on their heads, pyramids. Rosicrucians were there worshiping the Egyptians. Right next to our Christian booth, there was a bar where you sat where they had sod there. And they would take the sod, put it in a blender with some other things, and you would become one with the earth. There was everything you could imagine there. Can I tell you this? Jesus was everywhere. He was in every booth. His picture, quotes of Jesus. See, everybody likes Jesus. How could you not like him, right? It's, it's like you can't not like Bambi, right? How could you not like Jesus? The question is, is it the real Jesus? And you know why nobody has a problem with Jesus? It's picking and choosing. And in a human construct, I'm going to challenge you on this one. Think about it. In a human construct, if we were to come up with a religion, we, we would come up with one or two options. One would be an option filled with grace, and the other option would be one filled with truth. Let me explain. See, the reason people like Jesus is because they only pick the grace side, right? Uh, turn the other cheek. You know, I'm against war. I'm a pacifist, so I love Jesus. He's in my camp. I don't like guns, whatever. Um... The woman caught in adultery, the woman with five, oh, he's going to overlook everything. He's my friend, right? So there's one construct. The other construct is to like the harshness of Jesus, what I call the mafia Jesus. You know who the mafia Jesus is? He said, if anyone harms these little children, I'm going to take a millstone. Millstones were about this big, made out of cement. Put it around your neck and throw you into the sea. That's what they do in South Philly, right? 
Jesus said, if your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to go to heaven with one less arm than, you know, better to go to heaven with whatever. You know, you get to then go to heaven with all, hell with all your members. But that's rough, right? I mean, there's tension when you read that. But see, the reason people like harshness is you can control people that way. They're human constructs. It's more difficult to see Jesus full of grace and truth, lion and lamb, grace and law. See, this is what's difficult. So in John, in these encounters, we're going to see the real Jesus. No principles, no 12 steps, no laws, just encounters with human beings like us. We're going to hear his words. And John begins, we're not going to get far, by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created through him. My opinion, the greatest sentence ever written. Does anybody know the greatest sentence ever written before that? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The reason why that's the greatest sentence is the backdrop in which Moses wrote it. The whole world was polytheistic. The whole world believed in the multiplicity of gods. They had just come out of Egypt, the superpower of the world, where nine of the ten plagues were against the gods of Egypt, Ra being the sun god. And Moses sits down where no one has ever heard of monotheism and said, one singular god created everything you see. Now, I told you guys uh, that this is profound, right? Here's how profound Genesis 1-1 is. Forget about John 1. It has taken us to the 20th century to validate that with science. We needed Einstein and his theory of relativity to finally acknowledge there was a beginning. There's actually a book out you might want to read. It's called E equals MC squared. How many chapters do you think it has? Five. E equals MC squared. Right? There is a beginning. The problem is science doesn't know how it began. They tell us how it evolved. They don't know how it began. Uh, their greatest literary apologist, Richard Dawkins, says the cosmos is still looking for its Darwin. They don't know how it began. Now, John says, in the beginning was the word and where was with God. But what beginning is John talking about? I don't think he's talking about Genesis 1 because he says, in the beginning was the word and where was with God. And then he talks about Jesus being part of creation. We know there's a gap, right? There's, there's Genesis 1 and 2, and then there's chaos, right? The earth is void. We know the angels already exist because they clap for joy in the book of Job when the world was created. I think what John's talking about, and, and there's no article in the Greek. It just says in beginning. I think the in beginning he's talking about is what Jesus prays in John 17 when he said, Father, glorify me together with yourself and the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world or before time began. Before time began. In other words, there is a beginning before the beginning. That's all you need to know. That's all your brain can handle. We're going to eternity past. What John is saying is, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is creator. Now, I told you I got into the Apostles' Creed. And uh, 
Robert Mueller kind of whet my appetite with his book, and then I, I start looking at it, and the genius of it just slayed me. Uh, creeds existed because people didn't have Bibles. So they would recite creeds because this is what they believed. It also cleared up uh, questioning things, right? So I don't know how many of you know this, but today young Christians are questioning everything, questioning the Trinity, questioning hell, questioning the Old Testament, right? Now I have no problem with questioning, and I love dialogue. I love nothing more than older and younger people to sit around, Let, let's talk about the Trinity, let's talk about hell. I don't like it any more than you like it. But this questioning is strange because these creeds were written a thousand years before you ever questioned it. Like the Trinity has been firmly established way before you came along. That's why we say these creeds. So when I go in the calculus class, I don't have to prove calculus exists. I already believe it does. Listen to the Apostles' Creed. This is, this is astounding. I believe in God. They had a few words to work with. The Father Almighty. So in the Old Testament, he's already Father. He's the Father of Israel. He's the Father of mankind. And he's Almighty. That tells me the universe has an authority structure, which we're going to get into in a couple of weeks. When a child's born, it has authority structure, mom and dad. When you go into the world, there's an authority structure. There's police. There's teachers. The universe has authority. It runs by laws. God, the Father Almighty, and the singular revelation is he's the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, atheists, when asked when you die, and if there is a God, what will you say to him? Their answer is, you didn't give us enough evidence. To which I chuckle. Evidence. That's all I do is walk outside and read, and the evidence is staggering. The God of creation is everywhere. You can't read a psalm without looking at the God of creation. You can't get through your Bible without the God of creation. Um, years ago, I started a series of essays called 21 Reasons Why I Believe in God. I want to turn it into a book. And one of my re reasons is bees. Now, you probably think bees came from the devil, right? But bees came from God. They're part of the ecosystem. They're part of his genius. And how I got onto this is... From the time, uh, we had a kid in this church from the time he was five, wanted to be a beekeeper, now he's 35. And he's in Tampa, and we keep in correspondence, and he would tell me all these things about bees. You know, they give us $14.5 billion of free pollination, and, you know, today when you watch the Eagles, you'd have a lot less on your plate if it wasn't for bees. And they're not supposed to be able to fly aerodynamically. And then he sent me a book on bees, and then B, AB, was on the cover of Time magazine. I'm not lying. They are amazing. But you know what I just discovered? The last two months as I was reading? Fig trees, which are in the ficus family. There's 750 species of ficus, which fig trees are. Do you know all 750 species have a bee tailored to their pollination? It's not like any bee can pollinate a ficus tree. There's 750 different ones. Now you tell that to a naturalist, you know what they chalk it up to? Yeah, it's, that's why we're here. See, that worked out. To which I'm saying, oh my gosh, the slot machine didn't have to come up 777. It had to be like a million sevens coming up at the same time. How about this? The moon. So the moon's like our old friend, right? You know, you come home, there's the, look, the moon's there. You come home, it's above your house. We've seen the moon all our life, right? Now the moon has always amazed me. 
because no planet has a moon like ours. The vantage of the moon is staggering because 23 or 32 million moons, you know, give or take a few, fit into the sun, yet in an eclipse they're the same size. Uh, it controls our tides. Again, there's no other moon like ours. Now, because it's the 50th year of man landing on the moon, and I remember them, some of you do, you probably won't admit it, Remember they would wheel the TV in and Neil Armstrong, you'd watch all that? It was really cool. Um, but because it's 50 years, they have a lot of books out on it. So I picked up one of these books. What do you think the explanation for how the moon got there? The most dominant explanation is a chunk of Earth spun off. Now, I just use common sense and the eyeball test. Um, we're a perfect spear, almost, sphere. Uh, the moon's almost a perfect spear. Oh, wait a second. So how did we still stay round? And how did a perfect chunk go off that was perfect? And how did it get from that vantage point and controlling time? See where I'm going? Heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork day by day. It's undeniable. They utter forth speech. My son and I, Mike, decided to end my sabbatical. We would bike all of Cape Cod, start at the bottom to go to the top. So I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I was pretty shrewd. A month before, I ordered an electric bike. <laughs> Pedal assist, right? So you hit a button and you start pedaling, then zoom, away you go. Uh, the problem is the bike never came. So I had to go rent a regular bike to which I whined from Falmouth to Provincetown, and I mean whined the whole way. Uh, I told Mike, I said, Mike, our next trip, we're going to go to the top of Cape Cod and come down, because I swear it's all downhill. Every day, every mile, uphill into the wind, I swear to you, was my experience. Every day felt like the first day after football camp, sore, tired, hurting. And there's like this Carrot dangling. Well, if we could just get to lunch, if we could just get to a beach, if we could just get to Provincetown, if we could, you know. So we get to Provincetown, and I love whale watching. You know, next to safari in Africa, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. And um, we get the 4 o'clock boat, which if you ever go whale watching, go at 4 o'clock. And we go out there, and we're pulling up to, like, three whales right there. Huge, biggest mammals on Earth. But in the distance, I got to tell you, you could see 30 plumes in the distance. I mean, they were everywhere. We saw a baby whale. Now, when I say baby, it's the size of a Mack truck, okay? They grow 100 pounds a day. They can swim super fast. And, and again, naturalists tell us because they can't breathe in water, they started out as wolves. Now, again... I use the eyeball test, common sense test. Why is there still a wolf? And I would think that first wolf drowned if he tried to go into the water. But I'm just a layman. Isaiah said, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God said to Job, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Stand and be like a man, I will question you. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Goes on and on and on. 
As grand as creation is, it is not the full revelation of God. Because the bee that pollinates my food can sting me, and the wave that I so enjoy watching can drown me. So God gave us his word, and he put his word above his name, and his word reveals who he is. And then he did one final thing, Hebrews says, the God who spoke to the fathers by the prophets in these last days, for you and me living in this generation, has spoken by his son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He's maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, watch this, his only son, our Lord. Now John told us Jesus was eternity past with God and he's the agent of creation. Paul said in Colossians, there's nothing made, visible or invisible, that he didn't make. He's his only son. Now, the Mormons will tell you that God has, that Jesus is the son of God, but deep in their theology, they'll say God has many sons. Same with Jehovah's Witness. Islam does not believe he's the only son, and no other religion believes what we believe, that he is Lord. And Lord, by the way, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is Jehovah, it's Yahweh. You know, we put the vowels in so we could say it. Uh, we're going to come to a scene in John where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. They're giving him a real hard time, and he says, look, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And they're saying, where are you going that we can't go? Like, this is strange. What are you talking about? And they finally say, look, we have Abraham as our father. You were born in sins. We have Abraham. And uh, Jesus said, you know, Abraham longed to see your day, and he saw it, and he's glad. And they're like, what? You're not 50 years old, and, and you're going to say you saw Abraham? And he said, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. You love to throw something like that out of the Bible study? Before Abraham was, I am. Like, ooh, the whole room would drop. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. That would have been cool. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And when we get there, you'll see, it says from that time on, they wanted to kill him. Why? Because he made himself equal with God. He's our Lord. Remember the first time that name comes up? Exodus. Chapter 3. Moses sees a bush that's burning and it's not consumed. And he has this dialogue with God. And he says, God, what am I going to tell the people your name is? And God said, I am that I am. Right? Jesus will have seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I'm the gate, the door, all that. Nobody goes back and reads Exodus chapter 3. It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. The bush that was burning, the angel of the Lord, was presence was there. You're on holy ground, but it wasn't consumed. Now, this angel of the Lord is not a run-of-the-mill angel, and there's no run-of-the-mill angels. They're all awesome. But you remember in Revelation, John bows down to the angel, and the angel says, don't worship me, I'm one of you, I'm created. The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's called a Christophany. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, and he took them through the Old Testament and showed who he was, he stopped at Exodus 3. He was the angel of the Lord. And this is the point I want to get at. 
In the Old Testament, God was depicted as fire. Sinai, smoking and quaking in the fire. The day of Pentecost, tongues of fire sat on the apostles' head. The burning bush. Now, I love fire. I really do. I have a fireplace, an ornamental fire pit on my deck, and one on my lawn. There's two fireplaces here and one at Sizzling Summer. I love fire. I love its beauty. It's mesmerizing. But the same fire that's beautiful could burn this whole building down. There's that saying, don't play with fire. What's the Bible say? Our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? We're going to discover in Jesus. It means he's full of grace and truth. The same God who could lift up a woman and say, he who's without sin cast the first stone, where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's the same God that can call fire down from heaven and look us in the eyes. The Jesus we're going to discover is the Jesus that won't leave you the way you are. The real Jesus always transforms us. Next week, I'm going to give you an equation, simple math on Sunday, that changed my life. Grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. That's what we're going to discover in Jesus. John starts with the foundation that Jesus is God. And because he's God, you can find life in his name. Here's the beautiful thing. The same God who created whales knows everything about you. You're the disciple that he loves. He's a God far away and he's a God near. We've got to live in the tension of who Jesus was. Every other relationship has tension, doesn't it? So does Jesus. He's more complicated than we think. He desires to be sought. Here's the other thing. I don't know if you understand this. There's a move underfoot for Christians to cut ties with the God of the Old Testament. The idea is, well, that was the Old Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. These, these people are sincere. I think it's a reaction against a new atheist who talk about the God of the Old Testament is killing and so forth and so on. Listen, there's no problem with the God of the Old Testament. God is one. The Trinity is one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know what that means? That means when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were banished from the garden, and there was a flaming sword put there that they could never come back, Jesus signed off on that. You all realize that? And in Genesis 6, when God said, my spirit won't strive with man, I'm going to destroy the earth, Jesus signed off on that. And when Noah found grace in the eyes of God and was spared, Jesus signed off on that. And he rescued Daniel in the lion's dead. And he was in the midst of the sea when, when, when Pharaoh's army was drowned. Jesus and God are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They are one God. They are not separate. You do not have to chuck the Old Testament. And this is why we get into so many problems when we start to listen to the construct of man and we don't understand the power of God in the beginning was the word the word was with God the word was God and he dwelt among us and he still does and we still encounter him in the most obscure places in the midst of our suffering 
in the midst of our trials, we learn so much about him because he's always there to meet us where we are. I am excited about this journey. Uh, I think it's going to revolutionize our thinking. It's going to revolutionize our church, our lives, our families.